Welcome back to Strange History, a podcast where we discuss the stranger parts of history and the things that make us who we are. I'm Brad. And I'm confused because that's not usually our regular intro. We've been gone for a month. <laughs> We're doing better now. Alyssa here. I promise I'm not named confused. And we are so excited to come back from our almost like, what, 14 year hiatus? 14 year? It was so long. It was a month. So long. We've got a lot of really cool stuff planned for the next few episodes, so sit tight, strap in, and get ready for a brisk flight over the battlefields of World War I. Today's episode is one near and dear to my heart, as we'll be covering the most famous fighter pilot of all time, what killed him, a few conspiracy theories around his death, and so on. You'll also hear about a white dog and his doghouse, the importance of paying attention to the ground, and why you should never ever try and chase down someone who is trying to run away from you. Oh, and pizza. Episode 21, Red Baron. Like the pizza? <sighs> this is my one and only disclaimer. I don't speak German, and I probably never will. So, <laughs> Brad will be pronouncing all of these things for me because he speaks German. I kind of. I kind of speak German. <clears throat> More than me. So, uh, Manfred Albrecht von Richthofen, something to that? Reichhofen. Sure. Was born on May 2nd in 1892 in Breslau, Germany, which is now Poland. Um, his parents were... Major Albright Philip Karl Julius Freiherr von Richthofen and Kunigunde von Scheifes und Nierendorf. He came from a very uh, proper, prosperous and privileged family who had a lot of military history. He had an older sister... Um, Ilsa and two younger brothers, Lothar and Karl Holko. Eventually, um, four years after he was born, his family moved to a different part of Germany, and that's where he gained a pretty big passion for hunting. Shout out to his uncle, Alexander. It's also kind of interesting to uh, point out, every male in the Richthofen family would also have had Freiherr in their name because they were all royalty. And Freiherr is not an actual name. It's a title meaning free lord. Hmm. Interesting. When he was 11, Manfred was enrolled in a military school, um, Walsack Cadet School in Berlin. He actually got really bad grades, but he did pretty well in athletics and gymnastics. Six years later, he graduated to the Senior Cadet Academy in in 1912, Manfred became a lieutenant in the 1st Yulon Cavalry Regiment of the Prussian Army, which was stationed in Mel... Oh my... I'm never going to get it. Nope. I've said this like three times, um, which is now in Poland. Two years later, World War I began. He fought in Russia and participated in the invasions of Belgium and France. Um, as Germany's advances were halted outside of Paris, um, there became the need for cavalry was gone, because now we're in the trenches, right? This is when the whole trench warfare began. Um, so we didn't really need these guys that were on horseback, which is where Manfred was, but he was later transferred to the signal corps. So he was laying telephone wire uh, and delivering dispatches. So he was just a delivery boy for a little bit. Glorified mailman. Pretty much. In 1915, he requested to be transferred to the German Imperial Air Force as an observer um, because pilot school would simply take too long. That May, he traveled to Cologne and began his observer training program at the number seven air replacement station. His first flight did not go that well. He was scared and lost sense of direction, unable to give the pilots direction. 
uh, he, eventually he got the hang of things. He learned to read the maps, locate enemy troops, drop bombs, and draw pictures while still in the air. He did pass his observer training and he was sent to the Eastern Front. After several months of reporting enemy troops' movements, he was told to report to the Male Pigeon Detachment, which is a code name for the secret unit that was going to bomb England. Male Pigeon. Male Pigeon. I like it. On September 1st, 1915, Manfred took his first air flight alongside pilot Lieutenant George Zumner. Zumner? Cool. Zumner. Uh, he spotted an enemy aircraft, but he only had a rifle with him. He tried several times, but he failed to bring the plane down. Let me ask you this question. Okay. They were just shooting guns out of like a little hole or something? No. Oh. They were just setting in the plane. There wasn't like a thing over them? No, um, <laughs> at this point in history, planes are so, so shitty, you don't need a canopy. Mm -hmm. You're just kind of up there with a pair of goggles and a scarf, and apparently with a bolt-action rifle, just trying to shoot people down. Um, yeah, there weren't actually mounted guns on planes until, like, the middle portion of the war, and some military engineer, I forget where he was from, actually wired one up to fire through the propeller. Like while it was spinning, he lined it up to where the bullets would go between the blades out the front of the plane or off the back of it if you had a two-seater. I have no idea how many times it took him to realize, oh, yeah. you know, this has to be the speed of the propeller versus the speed of the gun to make it work. There's a lot of science going on. Oh yeah, absolutely. Anyway, a few days later, they went back up again. Uh, this time he was with Lieutenant Osteroff, um, and he brought a machine gun. <clears throat> so this gun got jammed, um, so he unjammed it, fired, and shot down the plane. When he returned to headquarters to proclaim this victory, he was told that kills in enemy lines don't count. Wah, wah. <laughs> so he did all that for nothing. A month later, he met Lieutenant Oswald Bulk. I'm assuming that's how you say that. Bolshek. Bolshek? Yeah, Bolshek. You sure? I believe so. You can say it however you want, but I mean, it's Bolshek. Bolshek. Okay. He was a famous German fighter pilot. Um, Manfred asked him for advice, and he said, tell me, honestly, how do you do it really? To which Bolshek, sure, replied, Good heavens, it is indeed quite simple. I fly in as close as I can, take good aim, shoot, and then he falls down. Okay. Uh, yep. Yeah. <laughs> That's what this famous German fighter pilot said to him. Um, this is sort of when Manfred realized that he needed a different approach to what he was doing, um, like the new single-seat... Fokker. Beautiful. Uh, fighter, or the Eindecker. Also another name for it, I guess. Um, it's what... Bolshek flew, and it was easier to shoot from, but there was one problem. Manfred still wasn't a pilot. He was just an observer. They did become one. He didn't go to pilot school. He actually just asked for help from a friend, uh, that same pilot that he first flew with, uh, George Zumer. So after many lessons, I think about 30, Manfred was ready for his first solo flight on October 10th, 1915. Afterwards, he passed all three of his pilot's exams, and he got his pilot's certificate on December 5th, 1915. What a great Christmas gift, really. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> he actually got to study under Bolshek, which was um, 
everything that Manfred ever wanted. This man was incredible. He was, like I said, one of the most famous German fighter pilots ever. It was kind of like his mentor, his hero, and he really was a hero to Germany at the time. So Manfred was in the Imperial German Army Air Service. Eventually, Bolshek invited him to join the, the Gestapo II, also known as the Justa II. And this is where he actually excelled in combat. This combat, combat was specifically the Bolshek Dicta, which includes approaching your enemy from above with the sun behind him, firing only at close range, always keeping his eyes on his target, and attacking in a group of four to six planes. So he did have a method other than just, you know, right. aiming. <clears throat> On September 17th, 1916, Manfred got his first confirmed aerial victory. He shot down a British aircraft, which led, <clears throat> sorry, which he had described as a big, dark-colored barge. It landed in German territory, so it counted. Ooh. Manfred landed next to the crash um, where he found Lieutenant T. Reese, the observer, was already dead, and LBF Morris, the pilot, died on the way to the hospital. It was actually tradition to give pilots an engraved beer mug after their first kill, but Manfred wanted something a little bit different. He actually ordered himself a two-inch silver trophy from a jeweler in Berlin. Um, this first one was engraved 1 Vickers 2 7 um, 9 16. So that first number one was the kill, like the number of kills he had, so this was his first one. The word was the kind of plane. Um, the next number was the crew on board, so two, and then lastly we had the date. Um, 17916. His last victory trophy, I know we're not like fully ahead, but I just wanted to throw this out there. His uh, last victory trophy was a 60th. Now, every 10th victory that he got, he made this cup twice as big because why not? Um, so his number got higher. It was kind of a very sobering experience to him realizing how high his number was. Um, when he went to go order number 61, the jeweler told Manfred that there was a scarcity of metal, so it would have been made out of um, an alternative instead of silver, so he stopped getting these little trophies. On October 28, 1960, Oswald Bolshek died, which was... 1960, huh? 1916, sorry. Jeez. It's about the same time I think the pizza company Oh my god. His plane grazed Lieutenant Irwin uh, Bohm's plane. Um, Bolshek's plane was damaged. He tried to keep it under control, but one of the wings snapped off, and he died um, on impact. So now Manfred's mentor is just gone. Germany needed a new hero, but we couldn't quite turn to Manfred yet. After his ninth kill, he expected to receive the Poor Limerit, which is also known as the Blue Max, which is a really, really high like privilege. Uh, really high honor, but at this point the requirements changed. Now you needed 16 instead of 9 down enemy aircrafts. I eventually got this in 1917, and uh, that's when he was named commander of the Josta 11. Now, while we're speaking of the Josta, we need to discuss who these guys are and what they did. The Royal Prussian Jagdstaffel 11, which is the direct translation of fighter group number 11, was made up of, if not the most, skilled and successful fighter pilots of the First World War. It did follow the uh, thing you mentioned earlier. I can't remember what it was. Bolshek Dicta. Yes. So even though they had like 20 or 25 guys in the Yashta overall, it would only fly in groups of five to six. And they were a serious threat to anyone in the sky who were not sporting their colors. 
They would support troops on the ground by keeping other planes from engaging the trenches, as well as providing aerial recon for ground troops. By the end of the war, Yashka 11 had become the most successful German fighter group throughout the entire war, scoring a grand total of 350 confirmed kills, 80 of which belonged just to the Red Baron. The Yashka produced a grand total of 20 flying aces across the war. They had only 17 pilots killed by the enemy, and two were lost in flight accidents. Its loss rate was one-tenth in total overall. So you mentioned Red Baron. They did mention Red Baron. Which is his nickname that he earned. Um, so originally, Bolchek is the only one who actually like painted the nose of his wing red. I mean, he painted some of the other planes in his squadron, but after he died, no one had dared do the same thing. But Manfred did. He specifically painted um, his Albatross D3. This is a quote from him. He said, one day, for no particular reason, I got the idea to paint my, uh, create a glaring red. After that, absolutely everybody knew my red bird. In fact, even my opponents were not completely unaware. Um, Brad mentioned earlier the Friar. Friar. Which is also loosely translated into English as Baron, and that's when uh, Manfred von... Richtofen. I want to say it. I know it's not right. Close enough. Richtofen as a Red Baron. But he had a bunch of other nicknames like, uh, like the Teeth Rogue, the Red Battlefire, the Red Devil, the Red Falcon, and the Red Knight. Um, and in Germany, they called him the Rote Kampflieger. Yeah, right? you, you got oh it right. Gosh. You the got red, it all The right. Red Battlefire for um, those of us who don't speak German. I'm surprised I did that as well as I you did. did really well. <laughs> Um, on, not on, in the entire month of April 1917, this is known as Bloody April. There had been months of bad weather leading up to this. There was finally a break in the rain and all of the cold, and uh, the Germans were at a really good advantage. The British, not so much. In this battle, the Germans only lost 66 planes, while the British lost 245. The Red Baron actually downed 22 of them, though another source says 21. Uh, this brought his total downed planes to 52, which actually beat Bolshek's record of only 40. So at this point, you know, he was sort of ready to take his place. Uh, after this huge victory, because he was actually injured, he ended up uh, taking some time off, which same, but he was ordered to do it. Um, postcards were printed with his image on it and his story sort of spread like wildfire. He actually got the chance to speak to many top generals and a bunch of youth groups. He did this for about two weeks that May, um, but then he went home because he just wanted to go home, you know, which same. Um, during this time he was encouraged to write a memoir and he did and it was later published, The Der Rote Kampflieger, amazing, which is the Red Battlefire like I said earlier. He eventually returned to his post mid-June of 1917. Um, around that time as well, the Yasta 4, 6, 10, and 11 were combined to make one larger formation. Jagdeschwader. Sure. He was, of course, the commander of this squadron as well, and it became known as the Flying Circus. Now, on July 6th of 1917, Richthofen would enter combat, and he would receive a really intense and severe head wound causing instant dis disorientation and temporary blindness. It's believed that he was shot in the back of the head, but he did manage to live through that. 
Several bone fragments were removed due to the injury, and against doctor's orders, he would return to service on the 25th of the month. It was believed that his death would cause a major loss of morale for the German people, and Richthofen would be offered a ground on the job to keep the war hero safe. He would deny that, stating every poor fellow in the trenches must do his duty. Propaganda fueled the legend of the famous pilot, and after his injury, he ended up becoming so disconnected from reality that he actually began to believe most of these rumors and legends himself. He even wrote letters home to his mother about some of those rumors. Things such as whole groups of allied aces were being raised specifically to hunt him down. There were cash bounties offered for proof of his death. And according to one of the rumors, one of those cash bounties was like $400,000. A Victorian cross would be awarded to anyone who shot him down, and that's like the highest military honor you could get. Of course, though, all of those were fake. But the fuel for the fire did burn brighter than ever. The Red Fighter would fly again on the 21st of April, 1981. 1918 near the Somme. At around 11 a.m., a single 303 round would pass through his chest cavity and he would lose control of his aircraft, crashing just off the road near a small village called Vaux-sur-Somme. The Baron was engaged in the pursuit of a Sopwith piloted by Canadian pilot Wilfred Reed Wap May. Wap. Oh, Jesus. He had just engaged in combat with the Baron's cousin, Wolfram Richthofen, who was also an ace flying with Yasta 11. And then who else was in that? Who? His brother, Wolfram. No, the entire family yeah. is just out there killing people. Yeah. Manfred had flown to Wolfram's location and had fired on May, causing him to break off and peel away. While chasing down the fleeing fighter, another plane engaged Manfred. Captain Arthur Brown had dived deeply in his own Sopwith to break off the pursuit but he had to pull his yoke back hard to avoid a collision with the ground. It's not known exactly who fired the round that killed the Baron, but when his plane impacted on the ground, it sustained massive amounts of damage, to the point of where he wouldn't have survived impact. The undercarriage of the plane had completely collapsed, the fuel tank shattered and ruptured on impact. When local soldiers with the Australian Imperial Force arrived at the scene of the crash, they were met with an incredibly gruesome scene. In addition to being shot in the chest with a 303 round, during the crash, Richthofen's face smashed up against the butt of his guns, breaking his nose, fracturing his jaw, and creating massive contusions across his face. The Royal Air Force credited Brown with killing the Baron, but in later years and after many investigations, it was determined that the angle of attack that Brown had could not have made him the killer. Today, it is believed that the Baron was killed by ground fire. Despite being the most accomplished fighter ace of World War I, Manfred was suffering from combat stress and major amounts of brain damage due to his previous injury, something that is believed to have caused him to ignore the anti-aircraft fire and enter an area with more ground cover than he originally thought. Today, it is believed that Sergeant Cedric Popkin was the one who fired the deadly shot. An anti-air gunner, Popkin was on the ground armed with a Vickers machine gun. Chambered in, you guessed it, 303 British. The calibers line up, but so do the injuries. The shot that killed Manfred entered his right underarm and exited near his left nipple, meaning the bullet that killed him came from underneath and not behind. Either way, there might be mysteries around his death, but the occurrences afterwards were all very well documented. Richthofen's body and plane, his Fokker D2, were transferred into the custody of one Major David Blake, an Australian officer, whom treated the corpse of the aviator with extreme care and reverence. 
This was, after all, a god among men. Blake arranged a full military funeral with high honors, and the Baron was entombed near a name. Six of Blake's men served as pallbearers for the funeral, and allied forces nearby hung wreaths with the words, To our worthy foe, to commemorate their enemy. Eventually, the body would be removed during the Cold War and sent back to the Rechthofen family plot. The Baron is deeply ingrained in modern culture as well, being featured in everything from video games and songs to comic strips and TV shows. One of the most famous appearances of the Baron is, of course, the Peanuts. The Baron has an unnaturally un the Baron has an unnatural rivalry with a certain white dog named Snoopy, and the two have engaged in quite a few battles, with the Baron always winning and also sporting his classic red fokker. And Snoopy, of course, on his doghouse, which he imagines to be a sock with camel. flew what is called a Fokker Dardecker or Triplane 2, often just called the Fokker Triplane. While he had other fighters in his time, the Fokker D1 would win him his last 19 successful kills, and it was also the plane in which he lost his life. The Fokker was the brainchild of Anthony Fokker, whom not only had a horrible last name, but had viewed a capture Sockwith Triplane while visiting Yashta 11 and Richthofen. The Sofwith, in addition to being the first fighter plane to enter full military service with the British military, was a vast improvement over what the Germans were using. Armed with a single 303 Vickr machine gun, the Sofwith ate the more heavily armed Albatross fighter used by Germany in the early years of the war. After trying and failing numerous times to create a plane on par with or to rival the Sofwith, eventually Fokker created the D-1 and delivered 100 of them to Yacht 11 to be used as the primary combat aircraft of the group. Richthofen himself stated that the plane was superior to the Sofwith in most ways, although it was difficult to land on occasion. Oh, sweetie, if only you knew. So does that mean that they were the only people who had this plane at first? They only made 350 of them total, so they had them first. Oh. Uh, boasting two 7.92mm MG08 machine guns with a top speed of 110 miles an hour, the Fokker was a battlefield force to be reckoned with, especially in the hands of a skilled pilot. Easy to fly and maneuver, the longer ailerons of the Fokker allowed tighter and faster turns than most other planes of its time, and it made dogfighting incredibly simple. It had a max ceiling of around 20,000 feet, which is the length of 60 city blocks, and the fighter was able to get massively high in the sky and well out of the range of most ground-based anti-aircraft weapons. Again, sweetie, if you only knew. On the 26th of April 1916, Richthofen managed to get his first kill using the older Albatross C-3. He shot down a French Nienport, and that was near Fort Dumont, although he would not be awarded credit for this kill. This is the same confirmed, this is the same confirmed kill Alyssa mentioned earlier, and was against Lieutenant Tom Reyes in Cambrai, France, in September of 1916. After finding the crew dead and wounded on the ground, Richthofen did the honorable thing by actually hand-burying both enemies and laying a beautiful stone on the grave. Richthofen would continue entering combat in the Albatross series until November of 1916, when he engaged in an hours-long dogfight with the famed British fighter ace Major Leno Hawker, not to be confused with Fokker. Richthofen flew the newer Albatross D2, while Hawker was in the much older Airco D2. So many confusing names. 
While retreating back to British lines, Richtofen engaged Talker and sunk a lucky shot in the head of the British Major, killing him instantaneously. This dogfight and others like it convinced the Baron that he needed a new plane with more agility, even if that meant an overall loss of speed. It would take months to find a plane, and in January of 1917, he would slip into the seat of his newest fighter, the Albatross D3. It was the preferred fighter of most German aces. He would sink two kills before breaking the wing off that plane on the 24th of the month, and he switched back and forth between his old D2 and a Halberstadt D2 for the following five weeks or so. He would again switch back and forth between several different planes before finding his way into his famous fucker, Fokker, in July. <laughs> oh my god. I know what's going to happen. In July of 1917. It was, interestingly enough, though, the Baron actually kind of required Yashta 11 to paint their planes in similar fashions to him. We had a technical issue and the mic just stopped working <laughs> after that. Anyway, um, most of Yasta 11 painted their planes red as well, but there's a lot of speculation as to why. It could be that because it was the unofficial unit color for Yasta 11, or it could have been as simple as they wanted to paint their plane the same color as their boss so the enemy wouldn't just be like, oh, that red plane is the Baron's, and shoot him down instantly. It also could have been done to easily identify friend or foe in dogfighting. Most of the enemy planes would not be painted. They were simply made, mass-produced, and shipped out. Whereas a lot of the German planes were painted, they had intricate designs, family crests, and things of that nature. So having your bright red plane, in addition to making it really easy for the enemy to find, would also let your friends know if you were in trouble as well. So a fun thing happened when I pitched the idea of doing the Red Baron for an episode. <laughs> I will read message for message. <laughs> this means we need a plan for May episodes. To which I responded, Red Baron, his death anniversary was today. To which this college-educated, has-a-degree woman replied with, like the pizza? To be fair, in my defense, okay, he had just told me earlier that he was at the store, and we were having, like, a party with some of our friends, and so we were talking about getting frozen pizzas for this party, and so he was at the store, and so I was under the impression that that's what he was talking about, because I don't actually read any message that anyone sends to me. I don't know what you want me to say. You're, you're the one who looked up the pizza. You're the one who thought this episode was going to be about pizza. I didn't think it was going to be about pizza. I thought you were talking about the party. Anyway, Schwann is the company that made Red Baron Pizza in, oh God, the 1970s? 1976. It became... One of the most successful products. Look at them. Um, a spokesperson for Schwann, Chuck Bloomberg, said that any similarities in appearance between our Baron and an actual person would be coincidental. So it has nothing to do with the pilot. Or... Technically. Yeah, technically. Allegedly. But at this point in time, we're learning about it in history, you know... Charlie Brown, Snoopy, all that. 
songs. Songs. The Royal Guardsmen wrote 24 of them about the Red Baron. Good for them. So I just thought I'd throw that out there. They also had their own their own plane wing. Oh yeah, <laughs> I forgot about that. Yes, they had their own plane wing. Uh, Schwans, who would uh, <laughs> perform air shows to advertise their frozen pizzas. They were not the planes that Richthofen would have actually flown. They were Stearman biplanes, and they were used by the military during World War II. The, big, the biggest difference, other than, you know, a 30-year time gap between the two, is that Richthofen's fighter had three wings, whereas the ones that they were using for advertisement just had two. I just love that they had a whole, like, air show for, for pizza. Frozen, frozen pizza, specifically. If the name Schwann's doesn't sound familiar to you, um, you probably know the little trucks that drive around, like, deliver food. It's like ice cream and stuff. It used to be an ice cream company. I don't know. To me, it feels like a rich person thing. No offense, but it just feels that way. Anyway, so this episode was clearly not about the pizza, but we just thought we'd share that fun story of how truly uneducated I can be. <laughs> That's all. Be sure to stay tuned after our outro to hear about our friend Steph over on the podcast, Creepy Vibes Only. So today's date is uh, May 6th. So today in history, uh, 1960, Eisenhower signed the Civil Rights Act. So, woo. In uh, 1996, body of the former CIA director, William Colby, was found washed up on a riverbank in Southern Maryland, eight days after he disappeared. That's all, we didn't look it up any further, but you can. Um, in 2004, Friends aired its season finale, so that goes directly out to my mother, that's her favorite TV show. In 2020, an organization in Ireland repaid a 170-year-old favor that was made to the Choctaw Nation. In 1840, the Choctaw sent $170 to aid the Irish during the Great Potato Famine, and in 2020, Ireland repaid the debt by sending $2 million to the Navajo Nation and Hopi Reservation for COVID-19 relief. So if your friends still owe you money, maybe give it a good 170 years before you ask them again. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and for a little hint as to what we have planned for June, Mother's Day is this upcoming Sunday on the 8th, and it was first celebrated right here in West Virginia in 1908. Say it right and use your accent. <laughs> Say it the way you have it wrote in the script, Alyssa. It was first celebrated right here in West Bygone, Virginia, there 1908. There's my new <coughs> Appalachian accent that you will get a lot of in June. So enjoy. Thank you all so much for tuning into this week. Oh my god. Thank you all for tuning into this week's episode of Strange History. Um, we definitely miss making these episodes and clearly we need to get back into the swing of things um, because I don't know what I'm doing anymore. And like I mentioned earlier, we do got some big plans for next month. So I'm so excited. Got some. <laughs> 
So for all of our latest updates on what we have going on, be sure to follow us on Facebook and on Twitter, and that is at Strange for History. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Good Pods, or really wherever you decide to listen. You didn't say it. It's so fun to say. Or really, wherever your ears are listening. Yell at me for not reading my script. You should read it. I don't know how to read. I had public education. <laughs> and of course, always enjoy the strange, weird things that make us, us. Hello, lovely humans. Steph here from Creepy Vibes Only, a comedy and horror podcast that covers nothing but the creepiest subjects. Tune in every Monday to get your dose of creepy for the week. Available on all major listening platforms and YouTube. See you soon!